Every day, 130 Americans die from opioid overdose. Some of us are in invisible prisons today, even as we try to appear free. Sales of alcoholic beverages are up 55% compared to a year ago. I believe God's going to set you free. Welcome, friends, to another episode here on the Recovering Reality Podcast. I have a guest with me today. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear more, more detail of your story, man. This is, uh, this is my friend, Jeff Walker, seven years of recovery and co-founder of Recovery Revolution in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. How are you today, man? Doing good, Eric. Doing good. Hope you are, man. I am. I am, dude. We were chatting before the call. We, you and I both spend a lot of time on video calls. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Been doing a little bit of that today. Well, a lot of it, maybe. Um, but I'm excited to connect, man. So, so Jeff and I, Jeff and I met, gosh, was that a couple weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah, about a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm privileged with the work that I do to where even if I go on vacation with the family i can still get a lot of stuff done that's what we were doing my wife's friend lives in uh very rural north carolina and while i was there i was just able to meet some people and i reached out to jeff at recovery revolution and and we i think it was the next day we were grabbing lunch and i was checking out the center is that right that's right absolutely yeah man and it's pretty awesome uh, it's pretty awesome what you guys are doing over there. And I did get to hear some of your story. Obviously, we're at the center and grab lunch and whatnot. Um, but I think I think your story is going to encourage a lot of people, man, from from what I was grabbing while we were talking. You've been <laughs> you've been on a journey, man. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about it, man. For those that don't know, Wilkesboro, North Carolina is. So let's see, that's like. Northeast North Carolina, is that? Um, or northern western, North Carolina? western part of North Carolina, really. When right western, region. oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, western, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, a little more rural, yes, yes, very rural, very rural. Mm-hmm. But as we were talking at lunch, uh, I, you know, I lived in uh, rural Ohio and have done work in, in some communities in West Virginia and different places. And oftentimes, my experience is that this addiction epidemic come smashing through those rural communities almost worse than the big cities. The big cities also have their problems, obviously, but man, some of these rural communities get hit almost harder and worse. Absolutely. Man, it's pretty crazy, man. But uh, so rural Northeast North Carolina. And uh, so tell us, tell us a little bit, man, about what was life like growing up there and what sort of pulled you into that whole world? Absolutely. <clears throat> Growing up as a kid, um, I, I would say I had some challenges to face. Uh, a lot of people will, will say a broken home, and I don't like to use that language in, in my life today. Uh, I had some challenges growing up, mother and father. I had a sister that died at the age of six um, in a horrific accident uh, here locally in Wilkes. Um, she was on a swing set and twisted around like a lot of girls do. As kids, and the chain caught her esophagus and damaged it, and she died on the way to the hospital. <clears throat> Needless to say, at that time, my mother and father was having their, their problems uh, of their own, uh, and, and that was devastating to the family. Um, and so, shortly after that, they divorced. Um, I went with my mother. Uh, my father, as you'll find out in, in, through this story, I, I was more like my father when it comes to certain things. Uh, so, I went with my mother. Uh, and, and we didn't have much, man. You know what I mean? Like she did the best she could. We, we was loved unconditionally, but we didn't have much. You know what I mean? Um, uh, she, she made her clothes. Um, uh, when we went to school and things, uh, made fun of. Uh, I'll say this. I know people can't see. The, half, the left part of my body, the birthmark, is red. Um, so I wear my left arm on my chest and on my back. Uh, and so that made me different. It made me different, and, and, and one of the biggest things that's made me very insecure because um, either people was afraid of me or people made fun of me. <clears throat> so I had very few friends, uh, you know, in, in elementary school. Uh, 
and it made it made it made some things challenging. It made me uh, not believe in myself. Right? It made me uh, want to be different. Always trying to figure out who I was. Um, and so, you know, I, I as through high school, man, I, I started skateboarding. I found, I found love in skateboarding. I'm pretty good at it. I got into it too in middle school. It got me into the wrong crowd, but I, I never got good at it. <laughs> right, right. Well, exactly. You said it. Eric. It got me into the to wrong crowd too. Um, so we started, you know, started smoking pot and drinking at the age 12, 13, um, vandalism, vandalizing. Um, we broke into my elementary school um, and, and went down the hallway, spray paint lockers, things like that. And got caught. <laughs> um, and so I started getting to my first little trouble, you know, at the age, what, 13, seventh grade. Um, and, and, and mother was not too happy about that. But I thought that's who I was then. I had created this image that I was a skateboarder, um, you know, that, that, and I fit in. I fit in with that crowd. And I was always trying to fit in. Um, I'll say this, Darcy, that, that is very similar for my story as well. You know, and it's it's interesting because who we are, our personal identity is a very big deal. You know, and I took on a took on a wrong identity as well, and it and it just added fuel to the fire when I was a teenager. I can, I'm sure everyone listening can relate in some capacity as well, but I can I can definitely relate to that. Um, you know, after that, I caught my break, man. Um, my mom. Uh, all my family was supposed to go to this, this high school. Uh, I was supposed to go to this high school because all my family went to this high school. And, and I, I did play sports. I was an athlete. And so I knew all the coaches at this high school. Uh, we had four high schools in this community. And so I was supposed to go to this one. It's north. My dad, my uncles, everybody in my family. My mom went to that high school. So they knew Walkers. They knew the Walker name. Um, my mom had been seeing this guy for, for a while. And so she got married going to my freshman year. At the time, I was upset about that because I wouldn't get to go to the high school my family went to. <clears throat> we had to move across county, and I went to a different high school. Um, but there is, is where the change happened. And I started figuring out who I was, I thought, right? I was an athlete. Um, <clears throat> of course, you know, not many people knew me when I show up. I went through the same similar situations as far as my birthmark. People ask me questions. And, but at that time, I had accepted it. You know what I mean? I accepted it. Hey, man, God's made me different. You know what I mean? Uh, to me, it made me special. And so once I accepted that, <clears throat> I was moved past all the stuff to come with it. And uh, my high school years was some of the best years of my life. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I've done some amazing accomplishments at that high school. I, you know, I was a three-sport athlete, football, basketball, and track. Um, you know, I, I got what you call Mr. West High, which is you know like uh, homecoming king and queen. So it, it, Mr. West High was like doing king, voted most popular. <clears throat> so I really, really loved who I was in high school. Now, along with that came some partying, you know what I mean, drinking, um, doing what some high school kids do. It wasn't out of control, you know what I mean, on the weekends. Uh, my problem with that was come my senior year, I, you know, I thought I was, I had a little ego, I was a little arrogant, um, is I thought I was such a great athlete that I didn't have to worry about my grades so much, right? That I was going to go to college based off my skill and, and not my grades. And, and everybody told me that that wasn't the case, but I didn't listen. Uh, I always had a problem listening, retaining information. And, uh, yeah, I had a problem and, listening too. <laughs> When we graduate, you know, a lot of my friends and everybody um, went to college, you know, and, and, and here I was, I didn't go to college. I didn't know what, what to do. So I had built this image of myself in high school that I truly loved. And after I graduated, I didn't know who I was. And so um, there, there was a crowd and, and, and people like me that partied and and I found who I thought I was in that crowd, which wasn't good looking back. Uh, a lot of good people, a lot of good people who, you know, was just like me, um, devastated by the disease addiction. Uh, so got into marijuana, got into cocaine, uh, uh, pretty heavy. For whatever reason, I thought selling whatever I was doing made me more who I was. You know, I, I was this outlaw 
hustler or whatever you want to say. Uh, and I thought that, you know, that created this bigger image for me. Did that, no, nothing, no major trouble come from that. I did get another break. I got a job at UPS, which is a good job. Um, worked there for almost nine years. Um, halfway through that job, uh, which was about 2000, um, I tried my first pain pill. Uh, I think if, if you do the research, I think the Oxycontin came out, Purdue Pharma uh, produced Oxycontin in 1996. Uh, it was up north, you know, in, in West Virginia and the coal mine industry was big on it in the beginning. So four years later, it hit our community. Not, you know, I'm, I'm one to really try new stuff for anybody else. And so I tried this little pill uh, that <clears throat> was told it was non-addictive and uh, I loved it. I loved it. I could work, <clears throat> you know what I mean? I could feel no pain. I had a lot of knee injuries and things like that from sports. Um, and I thought I'd found this miracle drug with no well, that's what they, yeah, That's what they labeled it. Yeah, a miracle drug, and obviously, many, uh, maybe most people, <clears throat> have heard about the destruction Purdue Pharma unleashed on America, the world, really. Uh, but I watched that that same thing, man. I watched the uh, oxycotton just come like a grim reaper into the community that I was in as well, man. So that's uh, crazy to look back on and see, and it's crazy to look back on and see of how the the marketing the evil deceptive marketing they used and how how long it took before there was a stop put to that but uh yeah man that's what it was dubbed the miracle drug and dude they just unleashed that thing like candy yeah yeah mm -hmm. why wouldn't why wouldn't people in the community take it that's what the professionals are saying to do Mm -hmm. And I'm not blaming all the doctors for that. The doctor was listening to their professionals, which is the FDA and the pharmaceutical company, right? Some doctors. Some went to jail. Right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. right. Rightfully so. You know, right? Not all, but there were some, there were some yeah. that were definitely in cahoots. <laughs> right, right. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, I went through the whole opioid epidemic. Um, that, that was probably my drug of choice. You know what I mean? Everybody kind of has a drug of choice, which is our main thing is. I did a lot of drugs. But that was probably my drug of choice. And it's progressive. You know, I maintained a job at UPS for a little while. Um, like any drug, it progressed. I went from doing so many a week to so many a week and to where my paycheck was going to um, the pills. And, and, and so expensive. Expensive, very expensive. Um, UPS recognized that, obviously. I guess by my appearance, UPS is, is you know, military, clean shaved. Boots shined. They want you to look good. Um, I let some of that go. Uh, they put me in the office and said, "What's going on?" And sent me to treatment, which is great. You know, I mean, UPS was a great employer. They sent me to treatment. Um, I went to treatment for UPS. For UPS, I'll say that. Um, I went to a thirty-day treatment in Virginia. Great treatment place. Um, come out. I had I had some things I had to do before I could get hired back at UPS. Kind of like a case plan. Um, I did all those things. I was going to meetings. I made it back to work in about <clears throat> six months. Uh, I continued my meetings. Uh, I think I put seven months together before I was doing pain pills again. I couldn't understand that because I'd done everything everybody told me, right? And, and I thought that was supposed to fix me. Um, but I was off to the races again doing pain pills. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> looking yes. back, looking back, what do you what do you feel like it was? What didn't you do, or what do you feel you could have done, or was there anything that you could spot where you're like, oh man, that's that was the problem there? Absolutely. Seven because seven months is you know treatment. You know the mess you went through treatment seven months. Uh, it's it's unfortunate if you're listening. Relapse does not have to be part of your story. Correct. Don't believe people that say that. It's not true. Unfortunately, though, it is the part of many people's story, and you can always come back. You, you may have lost some time, but you didn't lose the experience of it. Right. Interject that real quick. But looking back, what do you what do you what do you think, man? What do you think it was? Everybody who told me what to do was, was doing great stuff. The information I was getting was great. The problem was I was doing it for UPS. I wasn't doing it for Jeff Walker. 
Ah, gotcha. Right. I, I wasn't, you know, I was trying to straighten up for them. I was doing it for my kids. You know, I, I had lost my kids, DSS, because of my addiction. I had burned every bridge, you know, at this time, at, at 27 years old that I had. And I had some amazing things. Um, but I had I had devastated all my family. Um, they loved me, but they would not help me no more. Uh, and so I was trying to do it for everybody besides me. You know, looking back now, Good insight. Yep. I just wasn't ready. You know, you would think anybody, everybody talks about rock bottoms and everybody's rock bottoms are different. Most people would think that I was at rock bottom at that point in my life. And, and, and you know, I was, but not my eyes. I mean, my listeners have heard me say it on here before, but it's, it's a real simple. Rock bottom is just wherever individual decides to stop digging. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, my rock bottom got deeper, as you'll find out. Um, Lost my job at UPS. Um, during that time at UPS, let me say I lost my father. He passed away. He died. And uh, he, he had become diabetic at the age of 40. Um, he, I was like my father. My father used uh, substances. Um, and he was supposed to take his diabetic medicine, um, how he was supposed to take it. He didn't. He went in a diabetic coma at the wheel and died at the wheel. Of course, right to be here. That was devastating for me at that time because I had held huge resentments toward my father because of things I've been told throughout my life as far as the things he did, you know, drugs and, 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 and you know, women and everything that he done. Uh, I was told by my mother, obviously, and by that side of the family. Um, but I had accepted that because I was a lot like my dad. And I wanted to, you know, just smash that out and for me and him, Finally, father and son, and we was right there. We was right there, and uh, we never—I never got to do that with. Him. He loved me unconditionally, but I don't know if I ever got to show him that I loved him like this. And so he—he he died before that happened. Uh, of course, that fed—that fed my disease. Uh, lost my job at UPS. Uh, about two years after I lost my job at UPS, I had moved to Florida. Uh, <laughs> I moved to Florida to try to get away. Oxycontin here. <laughs> bad choice. We bad talked choice. about this at lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm in Florida now. And obviously my life is much different. What I do is much different. But um talked about that, man. That was funny. We were talking about how we, we always had this mindset where we can run away from our problems or outrun them or something. But everywhere I go, there I am. Absolutely. And uh what what you I'm sure you didn't know at the time was Florida, well. Ohio really, uh, but Florida right there with it was basically like Hill Mill Haven. Yes. Very accessible <laughs> everywhere at a at a lot better price. So needless to say, that didn't work out for me too well. I know everywhere you go that yard, so I took me and my addiction to Florida. Um I worked and 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 tried to maintain housing and things like that while I was there. Um, but I got a phone call. One night from my grandmother, and uh, she was she was very upset. And my mom had been in the hospital for um, two weeks. And I was unaware of that. Me and my mom, my mom did not. She quit enabling me, but she she loved me all the way through everything. She never gave up on me. And she was in the hospital for for a couple weeks, and something had happened. Our local hospital couldn't figure it out. They sent her to another hospital. That hospital knew in about an hour they was unable to help her and sent her to a hospital here at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is a very uh, known hospital. Tar Heels. Tar Heels, absolutely, absolutely. So when I talked to my grandma, they said, you need to get on a red-eye flight right now and come to Chapel Hill. And so they didn't tell me much on the phone. I did that. I get to the uh, Chapel Hill Hospital and my mother is already in a coma. I never got to say bye to my mother. Um, I, I never got to say anything to her. Right? Um, she had, she was diagnosed there. It took a team of doctors, I think around eight to 10 hours to diagnose her. She had, had a very rare disease called Wilson's disease. Um, one out of 300 some thousand people get it. Um, it's, a, it's a liver disease. Uh, uh, our body, produces uh, 
copper toxins and we release them. This disease stops your body from doing that and which becomes toxic, such as like a, you know, it's not cancer, but such as a cancer. Her eyes had sunflower, her eyes was gold, um, her, her skin was jaundice. And you can take a, a you can take a pill for it and, and live a, a happy life, but you have to figure out the diagnosis way before they did. So she was on life support. Um, I sit there and held my mother's hand to her last breath. We had we had decided to take her off life support. Um, I was deep in my addiction at that time. Uh, needless to say, that did not that did not help me. Uh, once again, you think I was at the bottom. I just lost my mother. You would think someone would want to change, but I went the other way. You know, it, it fueled me. It fueled me for for more destruction. Um, I come back home. Um, for funeral and all that stuff, I stayed here, had nowhere to stay. Um, and then I, I found my next love of substances, which is methamphetamine. Right? Um, and so I sold marijuana, sold cocaine, I did pain pills and sold them. And then I, I, I found methamphetamine. And it hit our area huge too. But what part of hit it was to make it the one pot method. The shake and bake method. Um, mm -hmm. So I had come to find out that I could make my own drugs. I was all in, right? And everybody in this community was doing it. Everybody. And, uh, and meth and is still just running rampant through the rural communities. Most people don't realize it, meth is just like a wildfire in, in a lot of rural communities across this country. Absolutely. It, it's one of the biggest things now, today, in this community. Um, mm -hmm. Not many people is making it as much um, because there's so much quantity coming over from wherever it's coming from to here. Mexico. Uh, yeah, Mexico. Cartel. Yeah. Um, so I did that. I was homeless. I, I couch top for people's house. And, you know, uh, I had something people wanted. So I was able to find places to stay. Um, that went on for a while. Um, the law enforcement knew what was going on in our community. Uh, they knew what I was doing. They knew what others were doing. And they was determined to put a stop to it, in which they did. Um, they brought the feds in our community. Federal, you know, it was so bad they brought the feds in. Uh, 33 years old, I got caught with precursors. Never got caught manufacturing methamphetamine, but I got caught with precursors uh, and attempted trafficking. I mean, I didn't have much substance on me. I didn't have much meth on me when they caught me. Um, went to jail. Uh, and, and through this time, I've been in and out of jail so many times, but no major charges. Uh, went to jail and uh, sit in jail five months. Finally made bond. Um, get out. My lawyer and everybody saying I'm going to get probation because I didn't have some major charges in my background. I wasn't a felon at this time. And they give me the max at that time you could give somebody on precursor. Man, so almost like they wanted to make an example out of you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, they knew what I was doing. They didn't catch me doing what they wanted to. So, um, the, you know, the DA, um, everybody give me two years, which was the max you could give somebody at that time uh, for a precursor. So I went and done two years. And prison. this is two years. Yeah. Prison, not jail. Yeah. Prison. I went down two years prison. Um, I didn't really change in there, you know what I mean? I, you can you can um, do substances in prison too, and, and a lot of times it's easier because yeah, like, man, I know people who got it easier in yeah. in prison than they did on the streets. Yeah, well, you can find to a certain area, so you ain't got to walk far to get it, um, mm -hmm. and, and it's there. Uh, but I got I got out. Two years um, on parole. About a month, about a month, I, I put together. I stayed with this good Christian family that has loved me and still loved me to this day. Um, I didn't have a place to go. I stayed with them under the circumstances that if I use, I had to go. Um, and I made about a month, you know, and, and I was using again. And I went doing the same thing that I was doing before. And somehow I made it, I stayed out 10 months um, uh, out of prison for 10 months. I caught a new charge, which was the exact same charge as a precursor um, and some other uh, charges with it, not, not nothing major. 
I was sitting in jail this time, knew I was going back to prison. I hadn't been out 10 months. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm caught. I got another charge, violation of probation, and everything that went with that. And so I knew I was going back to prison. I just didn't want to go. I want to go for as short as time as possible. Uh, sit in jail, sit in the county jail for three months. They give me three and a half years. Um, and, and at that time, that's the most. The judge and the DA announced in the courtroom that I was a menace to my community. And if I didn't change, if I didn't take this time to change, that um, the next time I, if I got out and got trouble again, I would never get out. And so, it's a lot to yeah. have hanging over your head. <laughs> yeah, it's what, not like right. jail and prison are a fun place. <laughs> right. And so it's not the information that I, that I wanted to hear at that time. You know, I, I, was, I, was, I didn't really retain it the way I should. And I was so mad, so mad when I went to prison. Um, first year, I wild mouthed. I mean, I was fighting, using substances, living the same way in there that I was living out here. Um, and, and my last two and a half years, or two years, I, I, I'm in recovery seven years, two of those years come from in prison. And I absolutely count them and think anybody should count that. Um, absolutely, man. Um, but I changed in there. And I, I we should that. maybe give you double for being able to stay sober <laughs> in prison, dude. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll take it. I'll take it. But um, I met a guy in there that was doing a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Wasn't ever getting out. And uh, he, he approached me one day, and, and I never spoke to him. He's like, what are you doing? And I said, why are you watching me? Because I was making moves, and I was doing things that, that, you know, wasn't the smartest. And he made a simple comment. He said, if you don't change in here, you're not going to change. You get out there. And, you know, I smarted off to him. I'm like, man, you're going to last since. You're never getting out of here. And he said, well, you're going to do one on installment plans if you don't change. You're going to do that time, installment plans if you don't change. Yeah, he's, he was right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That didn't sink in that day. I told you I had a hard time retaining information, especially when I don't want to hear it. Um, but I, I, what it did, I started paying attention to this individual on the yard, on the weight pile, always smiling, always smiling, happy, uh, being positive, and never getting out of prison. Never. Um, so I, I went up and I asked him, I was like, why are you so happy? You never get out of here. And he said, I can show you how. And he said, but you got to be willing to change. And I thought about that for a week or two. And, and you know, uh, I was doing a lot of uh, morphine at that time. Uh, it's, it's, that's a big uh, substance people use incarcerated with subutex or suboxone. I was doing a lot of it. And uh, I quit. And I bet I detoxed for six months off of it. And me and that gentleman, we, we started going to um, NA meetings in, inside the prison. They have they do have self-support uh, meetings in prisons, most of them. Um, started going to church. Started going to a lot of church. Um, and I couldn't. Here in North Carolina, you get different levels of incarcerations. Close, which is max, medium, and honor grade. Honor grade is the best. That's, that's where you get to go outside the bench, get to work. Some camps have... Uh, uh, work camps. I was unable to this point to get the honor grade because of, of the way I was moving inside the prison. And um, after me and this gentleman worked together for, I, I, during that time, I wrote letters to my dad. You know, I wrote letters to my mom uh, and they was gone. They was dead. And I found that some of the, you know, that pain that I was holding inside of me about that, you know, about I thought I'd been dealt a bad hand in life. And all that pain, man, that I held inside of me that I use substances to try to deal with. And well, man, <clears throat> I mean, let's be real. You, you went through a lot. Yeah. You went through more than what the average person. I mean, you, your story, you've been through more than a lot of bad stories I've heard. You know, you've <laughs> been through some stuff, man. It's, it's the truth, which is it's so powerful and amazing as to why you're at right now, uh, where you're at right now. But there is something um, healing, therapeutic yes. about, because we hold that stuff in. And when you hold that stuff in, I always kind of looked at it like, it's just like pain bouncing off the inside of you like a bullet gone astray and just ricocheting. And there's just nowhere for it to go, just bounce around inside of you. 
and I've heard I've heard people doing that, right? And I, I, don't, I never I never did that. I lost, gosh, dozens and dozens. Thirty was the number when I actually got clean when, over twelve years ago. I lost thirty friends um, to it, but I never I never did anything like that. But I've heard people doing it, and it being something that really helped them. Just I was puke it out, yeah, emotionally detox. Maybe that's the way to to say it. Uh, but I'm not surprised, man, that it that it helped you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Emotional detox is a great way to put it, Eric. I had never grieved the loss of my mother or my father. And so nine years after they passed, I finally did that. You know, and, and the first step of that was writing that letter and, and, and being honest, you know. And it started freeing me. And I, I found real quick after that, of course, I got my honor grade. I went to another camp. Um, I, I got involved with church and meetings on that camp, but I become more free in a place that had no freedom than I had been the last 20 years of my life. You know what I mean? That's uh, just beautiful, man. God has a way of doing that. You know, and I mentioned church and everything, but I'll, I'll just, I'll just interject this real quickly. In, in the Bible, Paul, the, the apostle wrote, you know, the epistles in there, most of them. And, the book of Philippians, he wrote in jail, and it is the most joyful book in the entire book. It mentions joy more in that book than any other book in the whole Bible. Yes. He was living in a, in, a, in a place where he was not free. He was the most free. Yes. And so for, for me to hear that you were able to live in freedom, spiritually, emotionally, you know, mentally, you were free in a place where you weren't physically free. I, dude, I... I absolutely love hearing those stories and that stuff because it is such an amazing picture of what's available absolutely. to people, wherever they are, if they're willing to get started and take a look, really do the work and connect with God. I never get sick of hearing it, man. It's awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Um, I've become free. You know, it was a beautiful, beautiful way of life for me. I was that person always smiling on the weight pile. I was that person always smiling in the yard. You became that guy. I became that guy. He was always smiling. <laughs> um, you know, I'm getting ready to get out. Uh, they do what you call a home plan, 90 days getting out. I had nowhere to go, but I wasn't worried about it. Um, and I, <clears throat> there was a transitional house that had just opened here for men um, that was opening. It wasn't even opening yet. Um, that, that person I told you I moved out of with, Christian people. She was doing she was doing groundwork for me and, and found this place and it was local. It was here in, in Wheels. And so she sent me the application. I filled it out. I got accepted about 30 days uh, getting out of prison. And so that how, how old are you how old are you getting out uh, getting into that place and getting out of prison last time? How old were you? How uh, I was 36. 36. Okay. 36 months. Yeah. Oh, man. So I come out to this place, um, name is Phases, Phases. It was, I was the fourth man there. It had been open 30 days, the men's program. Um, it had a women's program that the owner at the time had started for women. She had, had to go to Asheville in North Carolina to start her recovery journey and to go to uh, sober living and transitional living. And she's from Wilkes, so she stayed up there a year. She came home on fire, right? Wanted to help, wanted to have more places for women because there's not that many places for women. And so, um, you know, she, she got involved with the community, found a benefactor, and started a females program. <clears throat> what happened is she started getting a lot of conversation about men needing a place too. And so uh, the benefactor was like, sure, we've got this place here. We'll start it off small. And that's where I went into it. It'd been open 30 days. I come into it, I had two years recovery. <clears throat> When I got out, they made it tough. My probation officer picked me up. <clears throat> he said, you want the good news or bad news? I said, I'm out of prison. Ain't no bad news. He said, good news is you're out of prison. Bad news is you're probably going back. And I was like, what? Why would you say that? He dropped me off. He said, <clears throat> meet me in my office on Tuesday. He said, if, if they go on any outings or they do anything, I suggest you go with them. I said, absolutely. I'm all in. So I'm coming out to my community. All right. We talked about everywhere you go to that yard, but I come back to the community where I don't have no recovery community. All the people I know are doing the same thing I've always done. And I was fearful. 
Well, I go into his office on Tuesday and he puts me on house arrest. Never. I've never completed the house arrest. Never. Mm. And now I'm in a transitional house where I have to do daily meetings um, and, and pay, pay, pay rent weekly. And he telling me I can't go 20 feet off my porch. And at that point. No, that's an interesting predicament. Yeah. At that point, my mind said, run. My whole life. You know what I mean? That's what I've done. Run. Take the, take the bracelet off and go. Catch me. <clears throat> I didn't. You know, um, the owner uh, encouraged me not to. And, and that we would, she would advocate for for the things that I have to do, and and that's what happened. You know, eventually I started to get to go to meetings. Eventually I got to start working. Uh, I still have my house rest. You know, what I mean, I couldn't go point A to B. I like to go point A to B. I go to a meeting and back. I couldn't stop at Dodge General. I couldn't stop nowhere. Uh, so it made it real tough for six months. For six months. During that time, I had I had been kind of. Like I had support in prison by that guy. And so when I went to my honor grade, I started trying to help people too, right? Um, and so that followed me out. And, 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 and I felt like I did in high school. I felt like I'd found my tribe. I felt like I'd found myself where this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help people like me. That's how I felt. And so God put it together from there on out. <clears throat> the lady uh, asked me to be a house manager. Of, of the men's house and the benefactor asked me could I grow that house you know can, can we can you can you fill houses up I said absolutely so you went sorry sorry dude uh, hold on so you went from getting out of prison and being told basically you're going back and not being able to do anything for six months uh maybe it's another story for another day how you even paid rent during that time but you're, you're nothing nothing to where you you did the right things. You just did the best you could and made the next right decision. And then after going through that testing, shall we say, you were given a house? To run, to manage. Yeah, to but basically. Yeah, given <laughs> yeah absolutely. That um, is so good, man. The, the requirements to, to, be, to be a house manager at time was that you needed to have at least two years in recovery. And I had that. And I guess I had took on that leadership role while I was a resident with, with people. <clears throat> and uh, and I was asked to be staff, right? That's awesome, man. At that time, the owner, her name is Devin. It was an LLC. Um, hey, I know Devin. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so it was an LLC. Um, <clears throat> we didn't... If anybody wanted to change at that time, we would take them, whether they had funds or not, whether they had money or not. <clears throat> Obviously, an LLC is not going to make it that way. And so we made the decision to turn to a nonprofit, <clears throat> which become Wilkes Recovery Revolution. Um, and now this moment, is, so what's three, four years, three, three years mm -hmm. ago, something like that? Almost six. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm almost started, six. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> So the nonprofit was was established in 2016. Hmm. Uh, the LLC made it a year for the most part in 2015, 2016. Um, and we worked alongside each other. It was her and I. <laughs> I mean, some things happened. She ended up becoming my fiance, which I'm grateful to say today. Um, <laughs> and uh, we 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 started. She had a women's house that held ten. Now we have two men's houses. We hold twenty men, ten women taking people out of detox, treatment, incarceration, uh, provide transportation services for these individuals back and forth to meetings. They're required to do some, you know, follow some simple rules while they're there. Uh, we take them back and forth to meetings. We take them back and forth to jobs. Um, once they are employed, then they are expected to, to pay a rent to live there. Um, man, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to be able to give back like that. I'll and say so, this, man. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. It was phases. The name of that is Spaces Recovery. The name of that program is Spaces Recovery. Um, that was around that, you know, that, that was our, that was our, it's still our, our baby. Um, three houses, we developed a thrift shop during that time because what we found is people coming into our program don't, we got people coming homeless, we got people coming from prison, we got, they don't have nothing, nothing. And so we, uh, we started a thrift shop. That way we could provide 
vouchers and, and, and clothes and, 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 you know, now furniture for people that's moving out and things like that. Um, and so that was the two programs. It was a thrift shop basis for three years. And we found as a nonprofit, you, you, you had to be established and show stability uh, for at least three years before seeking federal grants, right? And, and how do you do that? You get community support. This is coming from a rural area where nobody talks about addiction. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to talk about it. Very common in most That's rural communities. They just want to pretend it's not there. Right. Stigma. 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 <clears throat> and it was tough in the beginning trying to get, trying to get those houses zoned by the, by the town, by the county. You know, it was, it was very challenging with the perception and the stigma that come around with people like me. Um, and, but we did it. We kept, you know, we kept fighting um, three years. Uh, 2020, um, we was able to, to get a federal grant and uh, create where you came the other day, Eric, called R3. Mm -hmm. R3 is Restore Hope, Rebuild Lives, and uh, Repair Lives, and Rebuild Communities. Right? R3. Um, it's a it's a RCO or recovery community organization, <clears throat> which is everybody that works here is like me have lived experience, um, and and they're in recovery, and they have a passion and love for people to want to help. We have peer supports, uh, six peer supports, um, project coordinator <clears throat> through his recovery center. We 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 get people employed. Uh, we can get them education and pay for it. We partner with their college, what's community college. Um, we partnered with almost every business in this community <clears throat> to hire people like me that's in recovery. Um, we also offer support to the businesses that if um, they, they recognize substance substance use, then maybe don't fire them. Send them to us, right? Let's, let's give them a chance. Send them to us. Let us, let us see what we can do and, and, and work together and, and then, and then you know, continue their employment. <clears throat> It's been a beautiful relationship with our community. Our community has embraced Wilkes Recovery Revolution. Um, it's, it's absolutely amazing that the community has what they're doing. You know, there's still stigma. <clears throat> Obviously, there's always going to be stigma. But uh, our open house here, I'll say this, we had an open house you know, uh, six, seven months ago, was the biggest open house in um, Grand Open. Excuse me, Grand Open was the biggest grand opening in our community. That's pretty cool. Um, that is pretty cool, man. It's powerful. When we got the recovery community organization, man, I don't know if you get one grants, people hear about you. We built um, some great relationships with, with the ARC, which is Appalachian Region Commission, right? They're, they're, they're a federal uh, funder, uh, some amazing, uh, amazing people that work for Appalachian Region Commission. And Golden Leaf, Golden Leaf Foundation was the other grant. Some amazing people in there. But once we got this in, in one year's time, we established two more programs in one year's time. It, it happened quick, which <laughs> was challenging in itself. Um, we, we established what you call Fresh Step Farm. And so we have a farm behind our transitional house now where um, we can hire individuals in recovery at a living wage um, to work on that farm. We have a project coordinator, does an amazing job. Uh, and then the, 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 the vegetables that we produce, we have a van. It's kind of called Wilkes Fresh. We have a van that goes into low-income-based places in the community and sells fresh fruit fruit and vegetables at a discount price. Because we, so awesome. we believe everybody should have the chance to eat healthy. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, we also uh, got Wilkes Harm Reduction Collective. That was, that's our latest program. It's the fifth program. Um, and what that is, is, is we provide, we love people who use drugs, right? I used to use drugs. I love people who use drugs, right? The problem is, is that a stigma. They don't have nobody to connect with besides one another. And mm -hmm. so we provide a service to, to allow them to come in the door, feel welcome, feel comfortable, and most importantly, feel safe. And we give them clean syringes, mainly overdose kits, right? I think you said 30 people, right, that mm -hmm. passed. And that was the number when I started my recovery journey, man. Now right. it's only, I don't even know how many now. Same thing here, you know, uh, in our community, methamphetamine, much like every community, fentanyl is big here. 
you know, uh, in which is a lot of people are overdosing from and dying way too early. And so we provide those services. And, and one out of five people, the data right now, one out of five people that utilizes that program, also checking everything else out and moving into recovery, right? That's not the goal. I mean, of course it is the goal. It's what we want to see happen. We don't make anybody that uses that program use another program, right? Just like me, when I did it for UPS, I didn't do it for myself, so they have to do it for themselves. But they're seeing that. They're seeing what else is going on around here, and it's intriguing to them. <clears throat> Establish relationships, man. Connection. It's all about connection. Mm -hmm. You know, man, I, when I came in and checked the center out, I was like, dude, these guys are doing, these guys are doing it right. You know, they're doing it right, man. We talked a lot about it at lunch. It, it is about community. It's about relationship. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that people who struggle with, with addiction, one of the biggest things that holds them back is their lack of connection. Most of them have been, most of them have been through some real tough stuff in life. Not all, you know, uh, but, but most have been through some real tough stuff. And they find themselves isolated and only accepted by crowds that aren't doing the right thing, exactly what you talked about. And it just... They just feel like they're all alone, pinned in a corner. I'm the only one in the world that struggles with this. Like, you know, I'm, this is never going to change. Why me? Just, just pinned in a, in a corner that they don't realize there's a way out. And it's the stuff like you're doing, man, that shows them there is a way out. There's a roadmap. There's a roadmap. You know what I mean? So it, it's almost like your, your center there has become that guy. Your center has become, in your community, what that guy was to you in prison. Absolutely. And he just came up to you and he said, he said, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do this anymore. And he popped off to him, but then he started watching him and he was smiling yeah. and he was always happy. And finally, uh, you wanted to do it for yourself and you approached him and it's your center is that in your community, what that guy was for you in prison, man. Absolutely. As I have to, to shout out to talking about what uh, revolution in the center is it was Devin and I for a long time. Devin is a, not because she's my fiance, but she is a remarkable. Resilient. Well, you better because she's a fiance <laughs> too. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, she's remarkable, uh, passionate, uh, got a drive like no one else I've ever seen and smart. Um, and so I always say, you know, she's, she's the brains, the voice. I'm the ground and pound, you know, I did boots on the ground work and, and that was a great combination. And now we have an atmosphere here with our co-workers that is unbelievable. It's a great vibe. You know, everybody it is, it is, you walk through, it's just a great vibe. And that's what we want. We want to create a safe space for anybody to walk in here and feel respected, loved and welcome. Mm -hmm. It's powerful, man. It's powerful. And I want you to plug some stuff about recovery uh, revolution. If anyone wants to follow you or reach out or anything, but first I I'll tell this, you told me something quickly at lunch. Uh, it, elaborate on a little bit. You, you mentioned how there was one specific police officer in town that hated you, hated you. And now <laughs> he's like your guys' biggest advocate. Uh, elaborate yeah. on that a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. But that, that was one, that was many, Eric. Uh, the, the judicial system in the community, you know, uh, and it was because I was at high, a lot of people knew me as a high school kid that, that was just, you know, a great, Good kid. great athlete, Good kid. <clears throat> and I've become this monster in the community that was, uh, you know, a threat to the community. Um, and so it was a DA. It was a DA. That, 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 oh, district attorney, gotcha. <laughs> that told me that I was a menace to society. Uh, in the courtroom, and that uh, that uh, you know said if, if if I didn't change, I was gonna be spending the rest of my life in prison. Uh, it's a law enforcement too, the detective. You know, I mean, I, I was like a lot of people living that life. I, I cussed them when they arrested me. I didn't go quietly. Would they say that? So probation, they couldn't stand me, uh, and so I didn't have a, a a very good relationship. That's one of the most things I'm proud of today, uh, because I am a former incarcerated person. Is I have an amazing relationship at DA. It's powerful. Uh, talks great stuff about me all the time. You know what I mean? To others, not to my, you know, maybe not to my face, but he's talking to others. And that's powerful. And and not that I created that change, but a lot of their perception is that Walker can change, and I believe that. 
yeah, law enforcement, I sit on meetings, law enforcement, um, the jail, captain over the jail is a wonderful person. Probation, I've got one of the most amazing relationships with all the probation officers, chief on down. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm very proud of that uh, relationship and that connection with the criminal justice system in our community. I love it, man. I love it. I, I'll say this too, to go from, you know, the county, not even, not really having recovery services anywhere in the city or county or that's helping people to go from being one of, if not the biggest problem in the area for the addiction drug problem to now what you have built is nothing short of miraculous, dude. God is obviously with you and favoring what you guys are doing. It's just powerful, man. I love it. I, I just, I love hearing this stuff. It energizes me. Appreciate you coming on and sharing it, man. I appreciate it. Um, anybody want to check us out, they can go to www.wiltsrecoveryrevolution.com. Um, that's our, that's our uh, website. Uh, it's got all our programs I just talked about. Or right, check us out on Facebook at Wilts Recovery Revolution. So good, man. Reach out. Check it out, guys. Especially, you know, if uh, anyone in the area uh, might be listening uh, as this podcast gets around, uh, go hit them up, man. Check them yeah. out, dude. It's good people that love people that want to see you get better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, man. I'm glad we met, man. I appreciate you coming on, dude. I'm looking forward to staying in contact. Please do, Eric. It's been such a blessing, man. Thanks for having me. And I wish you well. Yeah, man. You as well. It's a little, it's a little warmer here than it is there. I know. It was a little cold when we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's beautiful right. there, man. Country, it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, man. Well, we're going to chat again soon. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, dude. Absolutely, man. Eric, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. And thank you guys for joining us again on another episode here of the Recovering Reality Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Recovering Reality Podcast. If you're looking for more recovery resources to help you in your journey, you can access our YouTube channel, a free ebook, our podcast and blogs through recoveringreality.com. You can also connect with us about recovery coaching, sober companionship, or interventions. And if you're looking for treatment for you or a loved one, you can reach out to a very well-respected treatment center called Banyan Treatment Centers at 866-942-8154.